Welcome to episode six of the Reboot Insiders podcast. Today's episode is the final part of Jimmy's talk with Dr. Travis Ficklin, a professor of exercise science at DC State University, Dr. Robin Lund, the pitching coach at the University of Iowa, and Dr. Mike Sohn, chief scientist at ProPlay AI. The four focus on standards for change, max effort, and more. So please enjoy Jimmy's conversation with Travis, Robin, and Mike. So the next thing, we already talked about the difficulty with averages, but I also wanted to touch on the difficulty with correlations or just like statistical differences in general. Like oftentimes we'll do a biomechanical analysis, which says like something is correlated with velocity. Like, I don't know, some variables correlated with velocity, but as we all know, like correlation does not equal causation. And maybe, maybe you separated your two groups and all the group that is higher velocity is also the more injured group. And so now the thing that you think is correlated with velocity is actually instead correlated with injury. So the thing that you're trying to impact to improve someone's velocity, it's actual like causal chain, it's causally linked to injury. So I think it's really tricky like when trying to use correlations as reasons why you should make changes. I agree completely. No, I was just going to agree completely that it's a a slippery slope. Like you were talking about the old studies Mm -hmm. and those descriptive studies being useful. Sometimes it can help point you in the right direction and at least get started. Sorry, uh, Travis, go right ahead. Well, no, that's a really good point because all of us have probably had it ingrained in us that correlation is not causation, but you're not going to find causation without correlation being present first. And so that is why I I agree with you. It's useful to have those baselines and to be pointed in the right direction. I I also think a certain amount of what you might see associated with velocity and or injury is inherent with trying to squeeze more and more performance out of a pitcher. There are risks that come with throwing a ball with maximal effort. And if somebody's getting better and better in that, at that, then you can probably expect that some of the things that might expose that pitcher to more injury are also increasing as a result. It is much more complicated than saying, if these values go higher, then this pitcher is more at risk. I think we accept that premise. But at the same time, I think you can expect you know, more risk with more velocity. Why would that be? Because the structures that are producing that velocity are under more strain. And so what do you have to do to protect that arm now? What do you have to do to, in your training to make sure that those structures are tolerating the new loads that are being placed upon them and so forth? Yeah, definitely. And something that I think as we continue on, like what makes like a typical biomechanical analysis, I think because of this whole correlation versus causation issue. I think a lot of times what you'll see is you do this statistical analysis and you find there are all these differences. And then you need on top of that, someone with an opinion, whether it's a biomechanist or a coach to look at all these differences and just subjectively say, oh, I believe that difference is a positive thing. I believe that difference is a negative thing. So I think that's typically also is like a, an analysis of these differences paired with somebody's quote unquote expert opinion, which I think is starting point. I think that's really good because I think what you find is, and especially as someone who has like very in-depth studied all of the physics, what has been a super cool experience for me is as I've been studying the physics, thinking back of, oh, I heard this coach say that thing and I didn't really get it. But now that I can pair, because I'm a math science person, now that I can pair it with the physics concept in my brain, I'm like, 
oh, that thing makes total sense. Like an example of that, I think is like, when I first started hearing like coaches say, stay closed, <laughs> like keep your shoulders closed. They're like, what are you closing? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like what, what is closing? What closing a door? Like, I don't know. But then as I started to learn more and more, I started to like, oh, they're talking about hip shoulder separation. Oh, and what is hip shoulder separation? It's using more of that waist range of motion as a vector for transferring momentum. And I'm like, oh, now I can connect A to B to C. But it's, I think it's, I think a really, this is where typical biomechanical analyses are. And I think it's a very good place to start is yeah, relying on people like expert intuition. And that's also a little bit of a slippery slope. Anyone who's read like thinking fast and slow, or one of these like cognitive behavioral economics type things. But I think relying on expert intuition is also an interesting thing about uh, typical biomechanical analyses. I want to add one thing to that correlation talk. The, the other thing with correlations that a lot of people don't necessarily understand is the nature of the sample is really important. Like how much variability is actually in that sample. And so if you wanted to, if you want to get something published and you want to show a significant relationship, just make sure you have a lot of variability in your sample, right? Make sure you've got high schoolers that don't throw hard, collegiate kids that throw relatively hard and pro guys that throw really hard and everything's going to correlate to velocity because the smaller, lighter, weaker kids don't throw as hard as the bigger, stronger. And so you can see some correlations that might not that you're overvaluing just because the sample is got too much, not enough homogeneity in it. And then on the flip side, if you only studying elite and that's your sample and you find no correlations, it doesn't mean that strength isn't important for arm strength. It just means that these guys all throw hard and they're all strong. <laughs> There's not enough variability to show a correlation. So the nature of your samples is really important when you're reading studies that are using correlations as the primary analyses. Yeah, yeah. I think. I was just going to say, it's really important to understand what a correlation is too, right? Like you're basically saying what percentage of the variance in this is explained by the variance in this. And in biomechanics, it's pretty good if we're getting R squared values of 0 0.3, 0 0.4. It's not like physiology studies where they're getting two hormones correlating at 0.9 or, or something like that. In the best of those cases, we're saying something like we're accounting for 30% of the variance there's another 70% of the variance out there. And that's, that's just something to consider. There's a lot of other things that can go into it for sure. Yeah. It's such a nuanced thing. And it's, and I think there's always such a balance. I, well, I ran into this at the Dodgers all the time too. I think there it's, what's interesting about all of this is right. When you, I think it's one thing when you're doing it in a research lab, and you're trying to publish a research study and they're very strict standards for what you can publish and you want it to stand up under scrutiny. You want to be able to defend all of your numbers with other numbers. When you're working for a team and you need to win tomorrow, you don't necessarily have time to do the most rigorous thing. Like sometimes you're not going to have statistical significance, but you're going to be like, yeah, we want to win tomorrow. Let's go for it. And I think that was always a really interesting conversation, especially among Dodger people, because there was, what was really cool at the Dodgers was we had a really nice mix of people from the academic world like me, and then coaches who had never been a part of the academic world. And like you come in and you're used to your PhD defense where like everyone is grilling every single little number and making sure you have like perfect reasoning for every little number. 
And then like a coach is just, do you believe it? Yeah. Okay. Good enough for me. And I, and I don't know, Robin, as, as the sole coach in this group, I'm curious how you actually think about that trade-off, like something that you feel is very rigorously proven, or if it seems good enough to you or we're going for it. Yeah. I spend a lot of time reading a lot of track and field manuals, a lot of stuff, a lot of research from, for javelin, throwing javelin and the way they train. And I, I read a lot of programming you know, research articles on how to program sprinters, because I feel like programming a sprinter is very similar to programming a pitcher, but yeah, it's the same thing. I look at these things and it may not stand up from scientific. If I'm going to be really hardcore about it, and I'm looking at it as a scientist, somebody with a PhD, it might not meet this, the scrutiny, so to speak, but it sounds good enough. That's a great idea. Like from a coaching perspective, you also got to realize like a lot of these studies that show a significant difference, it worked with some of the subjects but it didn't work with some of the subjects and had no, and it, it actually decreases and it decreased in some of the subjects and might have had no effect on some of the other subjects. And so a lot of the times you're just looking for great ideas, just something to try. And then you also understand that if I do it with one guy, it might be this thing that really unlocks something for him. And then for another one, it just is a crash and burn kind of thing. But no, I just, I have a very low standard for what I will use. I try all sorts of different things, but it all comes from reading scientific type stuff though. Yeah. And I think in order to do that too, I feel like you have to have a really good relationship with your players too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah like, for sure. And they, and they got to trust you Yeah, and you got to be honest with them. It's, I think this is really going to work. I'll use velocity. I use a lot of Bondarchuk style programming principles with pitchers to build velocity. And Bondarchuk was a Russian scientist slash coach slash whatever. And he trained throwers and I've used those techniques with our guys. And the very nature of Bondarchuk style programming is that some people improve right away, then they plateau. Some get worse, then they improve, then they plateau. And others hang in there, get worse, then they plateau, and then they get better and they plateau. And if you're if you only have six weeks to do that kind of training, just the nature of that training means that some are going to get better and some are going to have no change. And that's exactly what happens every time I do it. It's just you you run out of time, you don't have enough time to, to get an adaptation. And I think that's coaching though, right? Not everything's gonna work with everybody. And you're just looking for great ideas. And as long as it's got a really sound scientific, the underpinnings, the, the philosophical scientific underpinnings are sound and strong and you feel good about them. You should feel comfortable applying it as a coach. Yeah, I love it. We, we have an outstanding question from art and I guess I didn't even think about it, but there's some people here might not know what TrackMan is. We mentioned TrackMan. Art asked with TrackMan pitch data, do we know the level of effort by the pitcher? And I don't know, I, someone here wants to give it just an explanation of what is TrackMan? Yeah, I, so we have TrackMan and we just moved to Yakertech. TrackMan uses Doppler, mm. am I right? Doppler, no. basically to track the baseball, you get incoming data on the pitch, like things like velocity. You actually get some, like the height release, The it's called release height, release side. You're getting spin rate, you're getting... I said velocity already, you're getting the actual direction of the spin. And then if a ball is put in play, you're getting the out, outgoing horizontal angle, launch angle, the exit velocity, distance, and those kinds of things. And then the, their competitor, Yakertech, which is making its way into the all these collegiate stadiums, is very similar data, except they have optical cameras. So a little bit different, but same data. Yeah, I guess in essence, like these technologies, they essentially track the path of the ball and the spin of and they're trying yep. to give you information about that. And do we know the effort level of the pitcher? And I guess not necessarily intrinsically, but 
but typically you can try to figure out what pitch type they're throwing. And then you obviously the, you know, the circumstances surrounding the capture, like if it's a game, if it's a live batting practice, if it's a scrimmage, sometimes we have this, these technologies in the bullpens. Yeah. I guess like in the data itself, you don't intrinsically know the effort level of the pitcher, but generally based on the circumstances, you can approximate the effort level of the pitcher. Mm -hmm. I just add before um, move off that Saris did some really nice work on that where he basically looked at like the average of the top five velocity pitches of each type that every pitcher threw throughout the course of a season and then tracked their average with respect to that maximum to try and look at what percentage of their max they were throwing and the big thing he found there is that as pitchers went into the postseason they were throwing at a much higher percentage of their maximum so that is another possible way to look at it there and sorry dr cookin i know you're going to say something i think that's a really awesome idea that's a brilliant idea to try and figure out it's probably the only way you could try and put a number on effort yeah, yeah i'm sure mike can give us more context on this but that's something that i've explored in the past just because of the way you typically define fatigue in the literature which is you come up with a maximum voluntary contraction right? You say, hey, give me your max effort, and we're going to define how many newtons of force you're generating at your max effort. Then as we repeat this trial, we're going to see what percent of your max you're able to achieve every time. And then people tend to define fatigue as what percent of that maximum voluntary contraction are you at? Yeah, that, that is a very traditional definition of fatigue. It's a reduction in force generating capacity. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really cool. It's not perfect in pitching, right? Like, where it's the velocity, not the force. But yeah, I think that's a really cool concept for understanding fatigue. But here's the thing that drives me nuts about all of that. And <laughs> oh, that, is that, <laughs> is that pitching is a multi-segmental sort of linked activity where if you've ever thrown a, a baseball and tried to throw one hard, sometimes it feels like the more you put effort into it, the slower you throw because you start interfering you start adding muscle force when you shouldn't. I can think of dozens of guys that, that I'm around that if they just relax and just let their body work and let the segments work as they should, more velocity just comes out and it feels effortless. Whereas if they're really trying hard and they're really trying to throw a ball as hard as they can, some guys go down in velocity. So that's an interesting I don't know another way you could do it in a game other than to look at what's your maximum velocity and just associate that with probably a maximum effort or a level of effort. And you're making some assumptions there about the expertise of the pitcher and how well that pitcher lets his body already work. But at the same time, if somebody, if somebody's really like muscling up and so on and so forth with something that's a whip-like activity, that can interfere with it. It's a really strange thing and it can drive you nuts to try and figure out, okay, so which one counted as the better effort? The one where they let the body work that maybe didn't feel like it cost them as much uh, uh, muscular effort or as much muscular input, or the one where they really tried as hard as they could. Uh, I, I don't, that's hard to say. Yeah. We need oh, an MG. I was going to say, Jimmy, that's a pure Jimmy question. And I think like one of the first conversations we ever had, right, was about trying to factor my fatigue model into your model. Yeah. Because oh, we yeah. could start looking at that over, over time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Someday, Mike, someday we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But no, like to your point, Travis, oh my goodness. So all the different like velocity development programs that I've been a part of never failed. We would have velocity testing day. Absolutely never failed. Velocity testing day, everybody would suck. 
everybody would be trying hard. They'd be like really tensing all their muscles, throwing as hard as they could. And they'd all be like two to three miles an hour, like below what they were hoping. And everyone would be disappointed. Like it never failed. And we always had to give them the pep talk the next day that guys, there's often like an inverse correlation with your effort level and your velocity. So just yeah. feel when you get to a game and you're not thinking about throwing hard, you're going to throw harder. And oh my goodness, it absolutely never failed. I would always be like, oh boy, velocity testing it tomorrow. Everyone's going to be depressed. <laughs> one of the, one of the things we do during our, in our, on our velo phases is when we're doing a, and, and we do all of our velocity testing and training on a mound. Like we don't do, it's just like, if it's not on the mound, I don't really care anyway. So we do it all on the mound and we use, I use, it's, it's like a version of airless learning. And it's like from the motor learning literature where you start out easy and you give them a task that, you know, they, they can handle no problem. But anyway, we basically just calculate 93% of their max and they have to try to hit that velocity three times. So they're on the gun and they're trying to hit this number and then we increase it to 95. And so a little bit more effort and they have to hit that. And then 97% and then hundred percent and often like clockwork, which is what I'm hoping will happen is they'll hit a number they've never touched before when they're at the 97% mark. I've seen it happen at the 95% mark where they're trying to be 95% and they hit a number they've never touched before. And you're just trying to get them to, to understand what easy velocity feels like. Really cool little trick, little technique that I've had lots of guys make big jumps and finally understand what it means to throw hard easily. What happens at a hundred percent? Does it, sometimes it drops, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yep. That's really cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I think it's always hard to, yeah, I specifically studied this, but it's always hard to actually get at what are the muscles truly doing in a pitch without sticking wires in somebody and, and measuring them. But it seems like a lot of the our understanding is that in the upper extremity, at least, like the muscles are generally decelerators, not accelerators, generally speaking. Maybe they, now, of course, like this is not, definitely not black and white, but I almost feel as people do this, like muscling up, they're like co-contracting and when really it's like the, whatever you, the velocity dependent effect, like it's really, well, the momentum transfer from the other body parts that's generating the velocity as opposed to the specific muscles of the arm. Yeah. The thing I think is when they're going 95, like this is what I think and the, what they tell me just from an anecdotally, if you will, is when they're trying to go at 95% and they're trying to hit some number that is literally a number that is less than the best velocity they've ever touched is I think they're just more patient as they're going down the mountain. They don't yank off. They hold counter rotation much better and they end up just they being stay, patient. Stay close, just let you stay close. Okay. Just let it happen. And yeah, they're not Yankee and they're not pulling off. And it's a pretty interesting phenomena to see. And I've seen it happen a lot of times. In fact, Ryan Gorman is our head managers on this call and he could chime in and he could tell you, cause he's seen it happen a bunch of times too. So it's just an interesting phenomenon. Cool. Leslie, I think this is a really good question. And Leslie asked, for those that slow down and muscle up, like we're talking about, would you have them throw at max effort more often so they get better at throwing hard? Like they learn how to throw hard easy. I, I like Robin's method of teaching them that that max effort isn't the same thing as max muscle force. It's more a it's a sequencing and a coordination. I, I'm probably not saying that very well. If you just think about the way a whip works, there there's no muscular effort from the handle to the end of a whip. It's just 
everything that's structural in that whip is just there to make sure that the momentum transfers instead of leaking. And when muscles get used that way in that multi-segmental linked chain, that's when you have what we try to wrap all into the same word that we call efficiency. I'm stealing something from this. I'm stealing this from Eugene Bleeker and I've used it and I can tell you, I can attest that it, it's a pretty slick way of doing it. But the kids that are really loose and lanky, I found that, and this is straight up from Eugene, I'm stealing this 100%, but they have those guys throw like heavier plow care balls and it really helps them to you know feel where their arm is in space. It really gives them some proprioception. And then the really tight guys that I have one, one kid that I'm picking up on our roster in particular, that's just really a strong kid. He's really muscly and lacks some mobility. And it, he looks almost like an iron mic sometimes when he throws, like it's just, it's over top and it's really stiff. What's helped that guy actually become whippier is throwing wiffle balls. Cause he has to like, he's got to get everything really loose to make it happen. And that feel has helped him. And that is straight from Eugene. The, the kids that are tight and stiff when they're mo- when stiff movers, have them throw really hyper, really light things. Not max effort, but I mean, play catch with light things and then opposite for the loose guys, give them something heavy. It helps tighten them up. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is something I've thought about a lot. And Travis, maybe you can help me out here explaining this because I don't really explain this very often, but the momentum transfer is somewhat, not somewhat, it is constrained by ratios of inertia. So as the, as this may be super technical, but so if we're trying to transfer momentum from something with a lot of inertia to something with a lot less inertia, like a wiffle ball, I think by definition, like you want essentially, okay. You got to step it down. You got to step the inertia down. Yeah. Like you think about a whip, right? Like the size of the whip just gradually steps down and down and down and down. And so if you are rotating all of your body parts as a, as one big segment, and then you have this wiffle ball, there's a huge difference in inertia between your body and that wiffle ball. Uh, much bigger difference than if you're a regular ball or a heavier plier ball. So I think you almost like, in order to transfer more momentum, you want to, rather than using your body as one big rigid segment, you want to make multiple segments. So I want this to be a segment. Now I want the upper arm to be a segment that's got a little less inertia. Now I want the lower arm to be a segment that's got a little less inertia. And now we're like stepping down the inertia across the body, which improves the efficiency of momentum transfer. So I think that's, I love, this is like one of my favorite things is like when things that are intuitive, like for a coach have also a very strong, like physics-based explanation. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it, take it back to the whip example. If you just try to take a string and crack it, it would never work because you haven't made that transition. It's very similar to how sound waves enter your ear. They have to be stepped down by these cones that wrap around our ears. Yeah. Jimmy, this probably is going back to a lot of your work, even better than me, but I remember from my, my comprehensive exams list, Neville Hogan's work on joint rotational impedance. And I'm not going to go too in depth there, but it's like the idea that like novice movers have, they're trying to constrain degrees of freedom. So they do more co-contracting and it causes them to have less transfer of energy and less inertia because they're trying to protect themselves. And I think when you're doing a novel task or something you're not used to, you do that, you co-contract more. And maybe that's, you're not used to throwing at max effort. So there's more co-contraction that's happening because your body's trying to protect itself. And that might be why we see as guys get closer and closer to throwing at their max all the time, 
they start to reduce that co-contraction. And that's where your models come in, right? Now that energy is now being transferred to a ligament because it's no longer being absorbed by one of the, uh, the antagonists. And that might be too in depth, but that's something I thought about for a long time. I, I think I wrote something on my like personal website about like weighted ball training and how I felt that it's gonna increase velocity because it's going to reduce impedance. <laughs> At the same time, it's going to reduce co-contraction, which is now transferring energy to, to ligaments. Sorry, probably too in depth, but uh, no. something I've been thinking about quite a lot. Yeah, that's great. So many of these things I think are trade-offs and like you gotta find the sweet spot. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's my philosophy in life. I say that all the time. Everything in life is a trade off. Yeah. We are, we're over time. We did not get as many questions this time. We definitely got through more of our our outline. We talked a lot about typical biomechanical analyses. We had some detours into fatigue, detours in a lot of places, but I think we got through typical biomechanical analyses. We didn't really get into the energy transfer biomechanical analysis approach the angular momentum approach. I think we got into those a little bit last time, but I think that's okay. I feel like we had a nice, uh, well-packaged story here and we covered a lot of ground. As always, thank you, Robin, Travis, Mike, for just hopping on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Reboot Insiders podcast. Be on the lookout for future episodes. And as always, feel free to reach out at insiders at rebootmotion.com or on Twitter at rebootmotion.com.